Chapter Twenty Five of the Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five. At a few minutes before ten on the following morning, Bliss entered the spacious entrance hall of Alton Court and rang the bell for the lift. He had passed in unobserved by the hall porter, and to his immense relief, the lift man was a stranger. He ascended to the fourth floor, and with a certain amount of trepidation rang the bell of his own front door. The summons was immediately answered by a strange manservant. "'Is Mr. Dorrington in?' Bliss inquired. The servant, who was a very inferior person indeed compared with the immaculate clothes, motioned him to a seat and disappeared. In a few minutes he returned. Bliss was leaning back in a carved oak chair which he had bought at Christie's, appreciating one of his own prints. The man regarded him with the air of one inclined to resent this familiarity on the part of a stranger. "'Mr. Dorrington will see you,' he announced condescendingly. "'Come this way.' Bliss followed his conductor meekly down the hall and into the room which he himself had used as a library. His friend of the night before was seated there in an easy-chair, smoking. A box of very excellent cigars stood upon the table. Bliss looked at them longingly, but his anger against clothes increased. They were his own partagas, eighteen ninety-four crop, and irreplaceable. "'Glad you're punctual,' Mr. Dorrington observed, motioning the servant to leave the room. "'Wait just one moment, will you?' He concluded the perusal of a letter which he held in his hand, and, meanwhile, Bliss glanced around him. He had slept badly the night before on a particularly hard mattress, with little air in the room, and nothing but a tin sponge-bath and a scanty supply of water with which to perform his ablutions. A sudden wave of longing seized him, an almost indescribable desire— for those small luxuries which had once seemed a necessary and inevitable part of his life. In the background was a half-open door leading into the white-tiled bathroom with its sunk marble bath. The sitting-room was pleasantly warmed. The pictures which he loved greeted him from the walls. His favourite books seemed to lean from the cases towards him. It was one of his worst mornings, this. His ready-made boots had been wet and were pinching his feet. His carefully brushed clothes were disfigured by a grease stain which nothing would remove. He even felt some slight return of that overtired feeling which had first taken him to the physician. His heart was weary for some of those old luxuries—the delicate food, the choice wines, the tobacco— the longing for them seemed to have swept in upon him with a curious and insistent vehemence, a longing coupled, too, with a fit of genuine indignation. Who was this man, living in his rooms, smoking his cigars, enjoying all the things of which he was deprived? Where was clothes? Mr. Dorrington folded the letter which he had been reading and placed it in his pocket. He was dressed in shirt and trousers and dressing-gown only, and the remains of his breakfast were upon the table. "'Now,' 
he began, leaning back in his chair. "'I'm ready to talk to you. So you're out of a place, eh?' "'I am, sir,' Bliss admitted. "'What is your name?' "'Ernest uh, Brown, sir. What else have you done beside drive a car?' "'I've been a light porter,' Bliss replied, "'greengrocer's assistant and commercial traveller. "'Good character?' Mm, pretty fair. Mr. Dorrington looked at his visitor thoughtfully. Do you know, he inquired, why I told you to call and see me this morning? Bliss shook his head. Not unless it was because you thought I might uh, take the place of your chauffeur until he was better. The car's a very easy one to drive, and I could look after it quite well. That was only my excuse for getting you here. Mr. Dorrington confessed. There is a reason why, if we could come to terms, you might be much more useful to me than any other person in similar circumstances. Puzzled, eh? Bliss acknowledged the fact. Mr. Dorrington smiled. Sit down, he ordered condescendingly. Bliss sat with becoming modesty upon the edge of one of his own Morocco chairs. Mr. Dorrington, after a moment's hesitation, pushed the cigar-box toward him. "'Try one of these,' he invited. "'Finest tobacco I ever smoked in my life.' "'They ought to be,' Bliss sighed, looking a little ruefully at the half-empty box. Mr. Dorrington stared at him. "'Ought to be?' "'I mean—' Bliss explained hastily, that I understand something about cigars. Um, these are the 1894 crop, a very little of that tobacco left. Well, so long as I've offered you one, I'm glad you can appreciate it, Mr. Dorrington remarked. Now listen to me attentively. I've sized you up in my mind, and I'm very seldom wrong. You're a young fellow— who's just a bit too good for his job, but who hasn't had any luck. You weren't born a worker, and I should think you would be glad enough to make a bit without overmuch manual labour. I find driving a car very hard work at times, Bliss admitted. Mr. Dorrington leaned forward. He was a thin young man of gentlemanly appearance, fairly good-looking, but with eyes set a trifle too close together. "'I can put you in the way,' he confided, "'of coming into a little scheme of my own. There are risks in it, but if it comes off you'll make a scoop. You'll be able to do without work for a year or two. If it fails, uh, you may find yourself in difficulties.' Bliss looked at the end of his cigar thoughtfully. "'Do you mean,' uh, he asked, "'that there is anything illegal about it?' "'There is,' Mr. Dorrington assented. "'Then why on earth,' Bliss inquired, "'if you will excuse my asking the question, "'do you risk giving yourself away like this to a complete stranger?' "'Sensible question,' Mr. Dorrington observed approvingly. "'The reason is simple. "'It is because, as far as I can see, you are the one person in the world who can carry this scheme of mine to a successful termination. Bliss sighed. You'll 
have to explain, he suggested. Mr. Dorrington moved towards the bathroom door and closed it. He came back to his place. I am hard up, he said. I won't bother you with my history. I'm a gentleman by birth, well educated and all that. But up against it, I can't work. The consequence is, I make what I can by my wits. Now, I've tumbled into a soft thing. You see these rooms? You know what sort of cigar you're smoking? I do, Bliss assented dryly. Don't know whether you understand anything about these things, Mr. Dorrington proceeded, but those prints upon the wall, this furniture, the china, everything about this place, means money. These are the rooms of a very wealthy man. Needless to tell you, they aren't my rooms. They belong to a young fellow about town who has had to disappear for a time. He had to disappear so suddenly that he had no time to make any arrangements or to do more than leave his valet in possession. Disappear? Bliss repeated. What had he done then? Mr. Dorrington shook his head slowly. Nobody knows exactly. There was a mystery about the whole affair which I suppose will be cleared up some day. The valet was honest for a couple of months, but the thing got too much for him. He has let me the rooms for a paltry five pounds a week. Dear me, Bliss murmured, looking around. They certainly seem worth more than that. Not only have I got the rooms, Mr. Dorrington continued, but I'm smoking this fellow's uh, Bliss, his name is, smoking his cigars and drinking his wine at half price all the time. You seem to be lucky. Bliss remarked, with a little catch in his breath. Is the uh, wine good? There's some 1899 Verve Clicot, and some 68 Port. How much of the Port have you drunk? Bliss interrupted eagerly. Mr. Dorrington stared at him. Uh, not much, he replied. Port doesn't agree with me. But the champagne, well, I never drank anything like it. There never was anything like it. Bliss murmured under his breath. "'However,' Mr. Dorrington went on, "'I made a few inquiries about this fellow Bliss, and I find there's not much chance of his turning up again for the moment. He must have got into some trouble or other. There are all sorts of stories about it, but it seems certain that he's done something which keeps him out of the way, and will do so for some time. Most of his letters seem to go to his lawyers.' "'But every now and then one gets delivered here. "'The other day a packet arrived. "'As I, for the first time, am Mr. Bliss, I opened it. "'I found it contained his passbook at the London and Southampton Bank. "'Now tell me, my young friend, "'what sum do you suppose this fellow Bliss, whoever he may be, has lying at his credit on current account at that bank, eh? Bliss thought for a moment. No idea, he replied. A hundred and sixty thousand pounds. Mr. Dorrington started. He even went a little paler. He gazed at his visitor incredulously. A hundred and sixty? How the devil? What the dickens made you guess that? he asked just the first amount that came into my head, 
Bliss assured him. "'The balance,' Mr. Dorrington said impressively, "'is one hundred and fifty-eight thousand seven hundred and thirty-two pounds, not to mention a few shillings. All that money there, mind, doing nothing. What do you think of it?' "'Prodigious,' Bliss murmured. "'And mind you,' Mr. Dorrington continued, "'this fellow Bliss has scarcely drawn a cheque since the day he disappeared, which was in December. That money's not doing anyone any good. It, or rather a portion of it, would do me a great deal of good. A smaller portion would also help you, eh?' "'No doubt about that,' Bliss sighed. Mr. Dorrington rose to his feet, crossed the room, and returned with a photograph which he passed to Bliss. "'Anything strike you about that?' he remarked. Bliss gazed at his own presentment. "'Oh, no, I, I don't know, except that it's rather like me,' he added, with sudden intuition. Mr. Dorrington smiled approvingly. "'That's just what I thought when you drove me to Prince's last night,' he admitted. "'That is why I asked you to call this morning. That is why I am offering to make you a partner in my little scheme or for yeah, relieving this absentee millionaire of a portion of his superfluous belongings.' Bliss, for a moment, half closed his eyes. A gentle smile played upon his lips. It was hard to believe that he was not dreaming. "'I have found several of his signatures,' Mr. Dorrington continued, "'and after a great deal of practice I flatter myself that I can imitate it to perfection. "'My proposition is simple enough. "'A large cheque, however clever the signature, might cause comment if presented by a stranger. "'If presented by you, in a suit of Mr. Bliss's discarded clothes—' there's a whole wardrobe of them here, it would probably be paid. Bliss paused for a few moments to collect himself. Do you really think, he asked, that I am sufficiently like this Mr. Bliss? There are differences, of course, Mr. Dorrington acknowledged. You're a rougher-looking chap, but you're quite near enough like him to carry this off, especially if you go in at a busy time and wrap up as though you were just recovering from an illness. My first idea was to write out a cheque for two or three thousand pounds, and trust to their paying it on the signature. Since I came across you, however, I've changed my mind. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't go for the gloves. They wouldn't pay a really big cheque to a stranger, of course. But if they believe it's really you— asking for your own money, they won't hesitate. What I've made up my mind to do is to draw the cheque for eighty thousand pounds, of which you shall have twenty, and I sixty. If they ask you what for, say that you need it to complete the purchase of an estate. Oh, what is the penalty, uh, Bliss inquired, for forgery? Oh, anything up to fourteen years, Mr. Dorrington replied. So far as you're concerned, you'd get off with half that. The thing is, is it worth it? I don't mind telling you frankly that life isn't worth living to me, 
unless I can live it as a gentleman. I might as well be doing penal servitude as living on the cheap, touting for a few shillings, drifting away from my friends, having to give up my clubs. I've thought this over pretty carefully, I can tell you, and I made up my mind long ago that if the chance came my way, I'd go for one big coup and have done with it. The chance has come my way. It came to me first through this fellow Close, offering me his master's rooms, and then through coming across you last night. Whereabouts is he? Bliss asked. I, I mean the man Close. Drinking. And uh, Mr. Bliss, is it certain he is not likely to turn up at any moment? It doesn't seem likely, Mr. Dorrington answered. They say he is hiding in America. No one knows what it's all about, but there are all sorts of queer rumours. I've heard it said, too, that he has been seen in London dressed like a tramp. In any case, he's got into some scrape, that's certain. He wouldn't keep out of the way for nothing, and he wouldn't keep out of the way up until now just to come back again the moment we try our little game. What do you say, Brown? Are you disposed to come in? Bliss stared hard at the carpet. It uh, requires little consideration, he said. If it's the risk you're thinking of, Mr. Dorrington began. It isn't, Bliss interrupted. I'm wondering. Well, it seemed rather hard on this fellow Bliss, doesn't it? Rubbish, Mr. Dorrington interjected. The fellow's rolling in money. He's a millionaire an idle young wastrel who never did an hour's work in his life or a stroke of good to anyone. It's wealth such as his that makes socialists of men. Bliss looked hard at his hands. His nails were broken, and there were some very hard blisters on his fingers. I suppose you're right, he agreed. When did you propose to try this? What's the good of putting it off? Mr. Dorrington demanded. I've got the signature perfect now. I suppose you are ready. Why not today? I've made my plans for getting away. I reckon the affair will not be discovered for some days. However, I am going to change my notes at once and leave for a place I won't even tell you the name of. You must make your own arrangements. Just so, Bliss murmured. Are you on or not? Mr. Dorrington asked. I'm... On, Bliss decided. Then we won't have any more fooling about it, Mr. Dorrington declared, a little glitter coming into his eyes. I'll take you into the bathroom, and you can help yourself to any of Mr. Bliss's clothes you like. I'll have the cheque ready for you when you come out. You can take a taxi to the bank, be back here by twelve o'clock, and then, by George, we'll make our boat. It's the one chance I've been waiting for all my life, this. I've never been able to make up my mind to this sort of thing before, but a young fool who leaves a hundred and sixty thousand pounds in the bank and disappears deserves to lose it. I suppose you're right, Bliss sighed. He suffered himself to be led into the bathroom and threw into his own dressing-room. He looked with some dismay at his greatly diminished stock of clothes. Then he opened the glass door of the wardrobe, glanced at his rows of polished boots, 
and contemplated his immense selection of ties, and fingered one of his shirts. "'You seem handy at finding things,' Mr. Dorrington remarked. Bliss nodded. "'I shouldn't mind a job as a valet. I'll take a bath first, if you don't mind. There's plenty of time.' In three-quarters of an hour he reappeared in the sitting-room. Mr. Dorrington glanced at him impatiently at first, but afterwards with a sort of reluctant admiration. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'You gave me quite a start. You do look the part, and no mistake.' "'Give me the cheque,' Bliss begged. "'I may as well get the thing over.' Mr. Dorrington pushed it across the table. Bliss scrutinized it carefully. Then he thrust it into his waistcoat pocket. "'If anything should happen that there's trouble,' Mr. Dorrington said, "'telephone me, if you can, safely. "'One, three, seven, two, Mayfair. "'You won't lose your nerve or anything?' "'I don't think so,' Bliss answered. "'There's no mistake about it. "'You do look the part,' Mr. Dorrington assured him. "'You're not quite so effeminate, "'or so much of a dandy as young Bliss.' "'But except for that, you're as like him as two peas. "'I tell you, they'll never hesitate. "'I should not be surprised if it isn't weeks before the thing's found out. "'Here, take this,' he added, giving Bliss a handful of silver. "'That's for your taxis. "'And remember, I shall be on pins and needles until you come back.' "'Within a quarter of an hour, Bliss walked into the bank, "'where his appearance created a mild sensation.' The manager came hurrying from his office with outstretched hands. "'My dear Mr. Bliss,' he exclaimed, "'so glad to see you. Come into the parlour for a few minutes, do.' "'I can't stop,' Bliss replied. "'How's my balance?' "'Much too large,' the manager declared. "'Mr. Crawley has been in and invested for you two or three times, but the money comes in too fast. We've nearly Two hundred thousand pounds here. Mr. Bliss produced the cheque and handed it over the counter. The manager glanced at it, held it up, and looked at it again. Handwriting hasn't changed, has it? Bliss asked. Not exactly, the cashier, to whom the manager passed the cheque, replied hesitatingly. All the same, I think that if this were presented by a stranger, "'I should want it verified.' Bliss shook the cashier by the hand, to the latter's astonishment. "'My congratulations,' he said. "'That cheque happens to be a forgery.' The two men looked at him, dumbfounded. "'My dear Mr. Bliss,' the manager gasped, "'do you know what you're saying?' "'Perfectly well,' Bliss assented. "'It's too long a story to enter into, but the cheque's a forgery.' I just wanted to see what chance it had of being passed. I congratulate you both. Bring me the book, and I'll change my signature. The cashier obeyed him. Bliss signed his name with some slight alterations, to which he called their attention. I can assure you, Mr. Bliss, the manager told him fervently, that we will use the utmost discretion in honouring your cheques, but at the same time I feel bound to point out to you that in the interest of everyone concerned an attempted forgery of such a serious character should be exposed i trust that you intend to do so 
"'Just so,' Bliss agreed, folding up the check and placing it in his waistcoat pocket. "'I'll think it over.' Bliss found a taxicab outside the bank, and twenty minutes later he walked boldly into the entrance of Alton Court, received the astonished bow of the hall porter, whom he met face to face, and ascended to his rooms. Without the ceremony of ringing, he let himself in with his own latch-key, and made his way into the sitting-room. Clothes were standing there, talking with some apparent excitement to Mr. Dorrington. At Bliss's entrance they both turned around. Clo's face was transfigured. His jaw fell, his cheeks became ashen grey. "'My God!' he faltered. "'It's the Governor!' Mr. Dorrington smiled. "'A compliment that, I think,' he observed, turning to Bliss. "'Now, be off, Close. I can't talk to you. Be off quickly.' "'Well?' Bliss stood with his hands behind his back, gazing at the speaker blankly. "'Who the devil are you, sir, ordering my servants about in my rooms?' he demanded. "'Capital!' Mr. Dorrington exclaimed. "'But chuck it now, there's a good fellow. Have you got the money?' Bliss laid his silk hat upon the table. "'Close,' he said, turning towards the valet. "'Will you explain to me at once who this person is, and what he is doing in my rooms?' Close collapsed. He had been drinking heavily of late, and the shock was too much for him. He went down on his knees. "'I'm sorry, sir,' he sobbed. "'I've been mad, a perfect fool. There was nothing to do here, and day by day it got on my nerves. I began to bet a bit, and I lost. Then, to make up, I let the rooms, just as they were to this gentleman. I thought he'd just kept them aired, and I meant to hand the money back to you.' "'You mean that you have allowed someone else to have the run of my rooms? "'Hired them out?' Bliss exclaimed, frowning. "'Pull yourself together, Close.' "'It's the truth, sir,' the man confessed. "'I was never so ashamed of myself in my life. "'I can't do more than to say I'm sorry, sir. "'I'll make it up, sir. "'And I'm only praying that you've come back for good.' "'It's too hard a job to sit still and do nothing from morning till night. "'You've tried us all too hard, sir.' Mr. Dorrington crossed the room and stood within a few feet of bliss. He looked at him with almost fierce intentness. "'Will you tell me who the devil you are?' he demanded. "'Who I am?' bliss repeated wonderingly. "'My servant will tell you, if you want to know.' I am Ernest Bliss. I don't know that I can blame you exactly for being here, if my servant's story is true, but I shall have to ask you to turn out at once, if you please. If there's any rent owing, you can keep it in lieu of notice. Give me back that cheque, Mr. Dorrington gasped. Bliss frowned as though he failed to understand. "'You haven't been turning my rooms into a lunatic asylum by any chance, have you, Close? he asked. "'Give me back that cheque,' Mr. Dorrington repeated, moistening his lips with his tongue. Uh, "'Can't you hear what I say? What are you going to do about it?' Bliss was strolling around the room. He straightened an engraving here, 
shook his head sorrowfully at the open box of cigars, and removed some dust from a little statuette with the corner of his handkerchief. A queer silence seemed to have fallen upon the two men. Bliss looked into the bathroom and came back again. "'Really, you know,' he said to Mr. Dorrington, "'I don't wish to seem discourteous or unreasonable, but would you mind—' "'Listen,' Mr. Dorrington interrupted. "'Aren't you the man who was here an hour ago, who dressed in that room and left for the London and Southampton Bank?' Bliss laid down his cane and felt in his waistcoat pocket. "'I am,' he admitted. "'Our meeting last night, Mr. Dorrington, was a lucky one for me.' He produced the cheque, tore it deliberately in two, and threw the fragments upon the table. "'There,' he said, "'take these away with you and clear out.' Mr. Dorrington snatched up the scraps of paper, and his relief was obvious. "'You'd better be off as quickly as you can,' Bliss concluded. "'No, you needn't be flurried.' I'm not taking this affair seriously. I suppose it's my own fault for being an idle millionaire. It's my money that tempts people. Perhaps I left clothes here too hard a task when I told him to sit still and do nothing but keep honest. If you will kindly root out that fellow who opened the door to me, and all of you precede me, I shall be glad to lock up. You can go to Mr. Crawley's tomorrow, clothes. He will give you instructions. One moment, though. Help me to change my clothes. We won't keep you, Mr. Dorrington. Mr. Dorrington departed in great haste, accompanied by his own servant. Bliss stepped back into the dressing-room, and clothes, with trembling fingers, helped him undress. You're not going to put on these miserable things again, sir, he protested, as he held up the discarded suit and the patched boots. Bliss made a little grimace. "'I don't like them any better than you do, Clothes,' he confessed. "'But they are the best I can afford. If only I dared help myself to half a dozen of those shirts!' "'Your own shirts, sir?' Clothes exclaimed, bewildered. "'These are all your own clothes!' Bliss sighed. He was fully dressed now. "'Not mine, Clothes,' he replied. They belong to that other fellow. End of chapter twenty five.